Elder Sergeant, be safe. New Year's safety tips. I'm here having a good time, dancing it up with Captain Chaos and his canine Kraken. We're gonna give you a few safety tips so you can have a safe holiday. If you're gonna use fireworks to bring in the new year, make sure you know your state and local laws. Also make sure you're mindful of your neighbors and having them pointed in a safe direction and avoiding flammable objects. Adults, don't drive drunk. Make sure you have a designated driver or arrange for safe transportation home. And for those of you that like to have firearms, it may be fun to shoot them off in the air. However, that's reckless activity. What goes up does come down and you can accidentally hit someone with a stray bullet, seriously hurt them and or kill them. So don't change the course of your life or someone else's just to celebrate a holiday because you don't want to see the mean side of Kraken as he has to be aggressive. Release the Kraken. Captain Chaos and I want you to have a peaceful and fun holiday. Celebrate 2023. Enjoy the new year. Live your life with the purpose and follow your dreams and prepare for more cartoons of me and my friends so we can give you more tips of the day to get you on your way. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to Black and Blue. For those of you that who transitioned from the lab, this is now Black and Blue, where we highlight police officers, law enforcement officials across the nation who are either rookie, seasoned, or retirees. And we acknowledge their experiences, we acknowledge their, their businesses, we acknowledge their 
websites or publications. We have a lot of fun doing it. I got a special guest in the background. I'll introduce him in a minute. But first and foremost, I want to say thank you guys for continuing to, to support the show, to come to the show and enjoy the platform in 2023. Happy New Year to all of you. I hope you all are safe and healthy. And we're going to continue to learn and we're going to continue to have fun and we're going to have a good time doing it. Hope you guys like the new intro. That is the new intro for 2023. A lot of work, a lot of fun was put into that. Um, it's going to be going on forward. I am Coach Clea. I am your host. It's your motivational speaker, your empowerment coach, your author, and your favorite baker's favorite baker. And he, throwing a little sun, a little shade right there as far as we are streaming on five different platforms right now for those of you who are tuning in. We're two on Facebook. We are two on YouTube, and we are one on LinkedIn. So if you're looking to have your, your questions, make sure you – I can't see who's on here until you put your name or your question in the comment section. They'll get acknowledged, and we'll answer them to the best of our ability. If you're looking for a shout-out, put those in the comment section as well, and we'll give you that shout-out that you're looking for. One-way publishing that you see – and I've got a few comments here I see coming in. One-way publishing you see is in the comment section, workwithlead.com. If you're looking for – one-way publishing is a sponsor. Their motto is they can turn a mere thought into a book that's bought. On. I wrote a couple of back here that you can see. There's a couple other clients that came through the uh, publication itself. They wrote their own publications, their own uh, authored their own books as well. It's a lot of fun. They can get it done. Turn a mere thought, turn it into a book that's bought. One of our sponsors here. It's also in the comments section. So go check out the website when you can. Also, our guest. His website is in the comments section. I'll introduce him here in a minute. Like I just said, got to get these announcements out. Uh, Sergeant B, I see you guys. I see. Thank you guys. Happy New Year to you. I see you dads on here. He's one of the voiceovers for Sergeant B Safe. Make sure you check him out. He's actually the voice of Captain Chaos. Yep, I see Demond's on here, one of our board of directors. Thank you guys for tuning in. Shayla's on here, another board of director. Great work. Loves the intro. The opening was awesome. Yeah, I was looking for your feedback earlier, but I, I guess I get it now. I see Tristan's on here. Thank you for tuning in. We're going to have a lot of fun. And nope, not acknowledging that one. You know, certain certain football teams don't get a shout out. All right, we can move past that one. Um, but one way publishing again, Sergeant V Safe is gonna say it best. Here he is to explain one way publishing. Stay tuned. Hi, I'm Sergeant V Safe. One Way Publishing is the sponsor for the podcast Black and Blue. And these books behind me are a few of the books that are on their website. Check out the latest one, The Lab Part 2. It just came out. It's a compilation of former guests that were on the show. But make sure you tune into the podcast. That way you can see cartoons of me giving out safety tips on how you can be safe. See for yourself. Go to the website, workwithclee.com. Subscribe now. All right. And like I said, One Way Publishing is available to supply your needs. Make sure you check them out. Let me get these banners back up here. There we go. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, I got a special guest backstage right now. His name is Brandon Griffith. He is uh, from Arizona. He's a 13-year vet as a law enforcement uh, deputy sheriff. Uh, he's a, also had many years as an EMT uh, in that in that same in that same uh, venue as well. Um, he's the founder and CEO of Griffin Blue Heart, and he's going to discuss that moment here more momentarily um, once we get into the meat and potatoes of this interview. He's a cardiac arrest survivor. He's also on the board of. Um, correct me if I'm wrong when you get out here. The Arizona Department of Health and Services. Heart disease and stroke, you're on that work group as well. Brandon, he's also a husband to his high school sweetheart and a father to his two wonderful, incredible kids. Ladies and gentlemen, give him some thumbs up. Give him some applause. I'm going to bring him to the stage now. Brandon, are you here? I am here. Thank you, sir, for having me on. I love that intro. Uh, absolutely. Thank you for making yourself available. I am starstruck. I am looking forward to getting into this interview and getting to learn a little bit more about you. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, get the likes up, get your comments ready. Brandon, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, please? Absolutely, man. I'm an Arizona native, born and raised. Uh, been in law enforcement since 2008. Used to work in EMS. I'm definitely a big family man. I love mountain biking. I've been a lifelong martial artist, and I love doing instruction going out firearms, combatives, whatever we can get into. 
Gotcha, gotcha. So what exactly got you and gave you the burning desire to be a servant for the public, be an EMT or to be in law enforcement? Did that something something give you that as a kid or did you come into that while you were in high school or, or some sort of training or going off to college or anything like that? Nah, man, growing up, I was a knucklehead. I was one of those diagnosed ADHD kids, always in trouble. I was every teacher's nightmare. I mean, I got the cops called to our school. I got expelled. I was I was not a good kid, man. And the only thing that really helped me, my parents were smart enough to give me an outlet. They got me signed up in martial arts at the age of four. And okay. having something to channel that energy and get through, it got me surrounded by military and law enforcement. And they had no patience for any of my recklessness and me clowning around. So they would smack me upside the head and tell me what was what and how to carry myself. And as I grew up, I saw the way that they carried themselves. I started doing ride along with some of the cops. I started looking at military. I knew that I wanted to go into public service. I wanted to do something because if not, I was going to go down a whole different other path. So I kind of I kind of got in the desire early on. I was going to do the military first, but I fell in love with my high school sweetheart and I did not want to be away from her. So I decided to focus on law enforcement until I was old enough to do that. I worked private security and became an EMT. And man, there's nothing like there's nothing like public service. There's nothing like becoming a cop. You know, when you find that missing kid, when you get to save a life, when you get to put someone in a cage that truly deserves it. There's nothing like that feeling. And once I got out in the streets, I got uh, I got hooked. I absolutely loved it. Anytime I could get out there and go after the worst of the worst and get in pockets, I was all about it. Absolutely, man. You, you said a lot and you said enough right there. It's truly a, a front row ticket to the best job in the world. It's the thankless job at the time. Uh, a lot, you see, you, you see a lot of trauma. You see a lot of crap, but it's worth it because, I mean, who else would you want to do it? If, if not you, then who? We hear that all the time. And, and to make a difference in this world, a positive difference is what's needed. This job is so very cyclic. It goes up and down. But this is one thing that's a constant because it like it, it's the thin blue line. It, we, we, our job is to keep the peace in order. Yes, sir. Absolutely. So did you have any mentors or influencers? Like you said, when you were coming up at the age of four, you you studied martial arts and they would smack you around and get you kind of rough you up and get you in line. Uh, did you have any other mentors or influencers that helped you get to the level of where you're at today? I have been extremely fortunate. Not only did I have an uh, amazing family and did I have Quadranim or Master Tim Elliott raising me up and Huang Do growing up, but once I got into the law enforcement area, man, I got surrounded by uh, some of the, the best, the best in the country, man. I working with, I had a phenomenal sergeant who was my team leader who took me under his wing immediately. Once I got into law enforcement, uh, some of the guys saw me in the martial arts I was doing and coaching some of the other guys. And they said, hey, you got to go do this training with Tactful Academy, this guy, Rico Durazo. He's going to blow you away. And I'm like, okay, I went in there with an ego. I went in there. I was like, who the heck's this guy? And oh my God, but my jaw hit the floor. It opened up a whole new world of combatives. And I was like, I've been doing everything wrong for the last 20 wow. years. And I wanted to learn how to actually adapt things into combat and make it work. When you got someone high on math slashing a knife at you, how does yeah. it actually work? It's completely different than, you know, you can focus years on your, your craft and martial arts just to make one thing work. And you have to strive and be your best to make that thing work. Right. When you start learning how body mechanics work and real combat works, it's very easy to shut people down. It's very easy to stop it before it happens. So it kind of became my lab. I hooked up with uh, the director of training there, Rigo Durazo, and he mm -hmm. became a phenomenal mentor, took me out and started introducing me to the spec ops community, started getting me out with SWAT teams. And I got to see a whole different caliber of instructors and guys yeah. that truly were selfless servants that knew how to hone in and help build the best versions of people's selves. And mm -hmm. that's something that I just, I can't replace. I got surrounded by mentors with that. And once I got in the cardiac world, I started working with some true rock stars. I mean, Dr. Ben Balbro, who created Hands Only CPR and said, I don't know how many lives with Dr. Wow. Kern. He was the state EMS trauma director to help me get my job back after my cardiac arrest. Wow. And being able to learn from him, being able to learn from one of the pioneers in it and getting plugged in internationally in the cardiac community. Man, I've just, I've had some amazing mentors and people out there and my, along with my assistant chief of police, Mark Mann, who stood by me through everything we're going to talk about today, being right. able to have men of that caliber have your back and show you how to do it and how to walk the walk is something that I can't be more grateful for. Absolutely, man. I, I, I just amazing the people that have the influence over you and kind of and build you up and then working in the job of service you give it back um can you explain to us and share with us what your current response but what your current role and responsibilities are with your department and with your uh, nonprofit? 
Yeah, man. So I, I've been very fortunate in my law enforcement career. I've been able to do patrol. I've been field training officer, crisis intervention. I've been a firearms DT combat as instructor. I made SWAT drug interdiction. I got to do a lot of really cool stuff with some amazing individuals. Uh, but after my incident, we're going to talk about, I realized that I can make a larger impact working predominantly outside of law enforcement. So I dropped to a reserve capacity. I don't consider myself a real cop anymore. I'm not hitting the streets 40, 60 hours a week. I do my, I do my hours each month, but I try to implement life-saving programs with, with departments across the nation and, and other uh, countries now. I realized I can make a bigger impact and save more lives doing that, but I'm still addicted to the job. I couldn't walk away with it. So I'm currently a reserve officer. I'm doing some health and wellness work. I'm helping with uh, resuscitation programs. And okay. I also still work on the training side, helping out with DT, firearms, and combat as instruction. That's but outside of law enforcement, my nonprofit, which is my primary role now, I am the founder and CEO of Grip Blue Heart Nonprofit. We prepare, train, and equip law enforcement for time-sensitive medical emergencies. You know, your your cardiac arrests, your drownings, your bleeding control, your overdoses, excited deliriums, all the stuff that we respond to constantly. Right, absolutely. And like we were talking backstage, those are the type of things that you need to be prepared for at a moment's notice because you get a call or just randomly, you just roll patrolling around the corner and you roll up on something and you have no idea what exactly is going on. And once you figure it out, you got to be able to react and, and you don't want to start thinking is if you're doing CPR, you don't want to say, is it one, one finger, two, two fingers on a child? Do I hold them this way? Do I turn them upside down? Is it back? How many backslides you want to, you need to have muscle memory and, and react. Absolutely. Absolutely. You are it until somebody else who's better trained than you gets on scene. And there's so many times where officers are thrown into the fire that say, hey, you let, you did a quick tourniquet application in a classroom two years ago, right? Okay, go save that guy's life. Or, hey, here's here's Narcan. Here's my choking baby. Save it. And you're just, there's so many guys that are not confident in their abilities because it's a perishable skill, just like firearms. And those that right. don't work on high performance and really test themselves under stress and put mm -hmm. themselves in those situations can't perform. If you're not doing force on force in a range, it's extremely hard. You can shoot paper all day, but once that guy pulls the gun out and you're in that, and you're engaged in that fight, it's a completely different world, right? Same thing when it comes to life and death emergencies. You can talk about it. You can sit on a clicker mannequin, but real people don't click like that. And you don't have any markers. It's a whole different world when you got someone in front of you who's actually dying and you're it. You're that until for the next six to eight minutes until fire and EMS get on the scene. Exactly. And that, that six to eight minutes could be a lifetime. Yep. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, stand by. We're going to uh, pause for the calls, and we're going to come back, and we're going to jump right into it. But Sergeant Be Safe has to get the, one of these commercials. I hope you guys enjoy it. Sergeant Be Safe here. And do you think I fight crime all by myself? Well, I don't. There's a whole team of us, and right now I'm going to introduce you to one of them. He's on his way here now. When he gets here, I want you to give him a warm welcome. Hey, Crew Captain Chaos here. I'm also a canine handler. Here's my dog, Kraken. Release the Kraken. That's what my dog's in the nighttime. Together, we fight crime and keep everyone safe. He's absolutely right, and he has a partner that rides along with him every day. It's his canine. And they work together to sniff out crooks that like to cause you and me trouble. You guys know me. I'm Rob You Blind. Oh, I don't live here. This door was left unlocked. You guys make it very easy for me to steal your valuables. Sometimes I get my friends Chance Wilder and treacherous Tony to help me. Chance Wilder at your service. I'm the computer hacker and IT whiz. The scammer of all scammers. My friends Rob You Blind and Treacherous Tony often help me. Yeah, I'm Treacherous Tony. I deal illegal drugs and pills. This is just terrible news. Avoid him at all costs. My new friends Robbie Blind and Chance Wilder brought me into their crew. I sell it to kids. I give it to them. Ooh. 
Scotty Poopa be safe. You can't stop me. I know my rights. I'm just walking right. around here. All right, all right. I give up. I walk toward the can. Uh. Film pack. With more chaos comes more confusion. However, I'm Sergeant B. Safe, and I'll continue to stay Ooh. here to give you your tip of the day to get you on your way. Subscribe now. All right, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to Black and Blue. We got Brandon Griffith backstage. We just uh, had uh, a brief introduction on some of the things he does and some of his experiences, some of the things he provides here uh, for us in the law enforcement community. I'm going to bring him back to the stage. Brandon, you still there? I'm here, yes, sir. Perfect. We're going to jump into it. Brandon, let me let me know. I know we, we briefly touched over uh, a lot of the reason why a lot of people are here and going to be watching the replay. 17 minutes was very serious and very traumatic for you. Uh, what happened in those 17 minutes that you would like to share for, with us? Yeah, you know, it's uh, something I never expected happened to me. And before I worked in law enforcement, I mean, the first time I did CPR, I was in high school, man. And mm -hmm. I lost a buddy in college to it. I had an uncle go down. Uh, heart disease affects so many people in our community. It's just one of those, especially being a young, fit cop. I just made my SWAT team. Everything was going well. My wife had just been accepted to medical school. I was in phenomenal shape. I never in a million years thought that I would drop dead from cardiac arrest. And, you know, I wish I could tell you that I was in a foot pursuit or doing something cool or, you know, on the football field getting hit. But I was like four out of five cases. I was in my home. I was in my den wow. reading a book. My wife was on the computer. I put the book down. I said, hey, I'm going to take the dog out. I took two steps towards my door and it was just... You ever had you ever had someone jump out and scare you? You know, when your heart skips that beat, kind of like yeah. that fluttering. Well, imagine that happening, but you can't recover from it. It's this this weird flutter in your chest, and immediately I couldn't breathe. Even though I collapsed within about a second and a half, I experienced time distortion. Those that have been through critical stress incidents know what I'm talking about. It's it, everything slowed way down, and I remember going, "Something's not right." And I remember bearing down. And having my jugular veins start to distend, my face started turning the darkest purple my wife had ever seen. I'm trying to do combat breathing like we're taught to slow down my respirations. But mm -hmm. when you're in cardiac arrest, there's no blood being pumped to your brain or anywhere else. Your lungs physically cannot expand with oxygen. So I started convulsing and started doing agonal breathing, <laughs> trying to force myself to breathe. So my wife turns around, recognizes this is an emergency immediately, calls 911. I fall back into my bookshelf, breaking every tear on the way down. Wow. She tries to she tries to brace me and catch me. Right, my wife is about five foot three. I'm six foot four, so I I go right over her, put my head through the wall. I land on my hands and my knees, and I'm looking out in my hallway, and I'm starting to get tunnel vision. But it's not like what you experience in the field when your adrenaline starts pumping and you're, it's hard to focus on certain things. There's a lot going on. It's not like that. It's this dark, dark purple. And I'm starting to see shapes and silhouettes and things are fluttering out on me, right? Everything's closing in. Oh. And that moment, man, I can't tell you the feeling of helplessness. At that moment, here I am a cop. I'm an EMT. I've saved I don't know how many lives. I've done CPR. I've done tourniquet application. There is nothing I can do in this moment to save my own life. And that's oh. when I knew that I was, I was a goner, man. And that's when I collapsed. Uh, I dropped dead to my floor right there. My wife rolled me on my back. She started doing CPR on me. She worked on me for four, four and a half minutes. And, you know, wow. she wasn't she wasn't getting the depth she wanted. And she's she's a true genius. I mean, she put my feet up on the couch. So all the oxygen, I had blood on my legs or go down on my core. I can't get ER docs to think like that. The fact that she had that presence of mind in that moment still blows me away. But she worked on me for about four, four and a half minutes. The first responder was obviously a cop. She had to stop what she's doing, go open the door, let him in. This officer was not equipped with an AED like most departments around our country. But he jumped on my chest and did an amazing job. He gave it everything he had. He worked on me until fire and EMS got there around the nine, nine and a half minute mark. Uh, they go into my den. They had to get more room to work on me. So they dragged my body in the living room where they got more room to work. You know, they're IO drilling me. They're dropping OPAs in my mouth. They're doing all this stuff. I was dead for like 16 minutes and 48 seconds before they wow. finally got, they were able to resuscitate me. Wow. And when I was brought back, man, that pain 
is something that I it's, it's it's hard to describe to those who haven't been through it. You know, your arms and your legs, and you fall asleep on me, get those pins and needles feeling. Imagine that times a thousand. Like it just wow. it hurts everywhere. My chest had been compressed in. I got stress fractures. There's blood in my mouth from when they put the OPA in. I can taste that. You know, when you're when you get tased, you have that metallic taste in your mouth yeah. and yeah. that those weird tingles afterwards. But the worst of it was my head, man. I just I'm every, with every single heartbeat, I'm getting these white flashes in my head. It feels like someone's taking a sledgehammer on the top of my head. And at that wow. moment, I sat up. I started pushing the firefighters off me. Uh, my wife grabbed me by the face and told me, you know, don't leave me. I said, I won't before I collapse backwards. In that moment, from that moment on, I don't remember anything for the almost nothing for the next five days because my brain was, you know, recovering from oxygen deprivation. But I do remember feeling the sway of the gurney and I could hear the firefighters walking on the rocks in my front yard. I mean, according to the crew, they said I was in good spirits. I was in the back of the ambulance calling them hose draggers and having a good old time. So uh, I'm still friends with the guys this day, but they take me to the hospital and they start running all these tests on me and I am in and out of consciousness. I'm waking up. My wife's there. I got some guys from my squad and I'm passing back out and mm -hmm. they're telling me I died and came back. I'm passing back out. They're running every test possible and they're looking at my heart, cardiac MRIs and stress tests. I mean, they broke my blood down to chromosomic levels looking for genetic mutations and there was no diagnosis, nothing wrong with my heart, healthier than a horse. And that's where, that's when I started realizing the magnitude of what cardiac arrest is, how many young people die every day, young athletic males being at the highest risk. Yeah. And for me, they had no diagnosis for it. It was like, hey, you know, from the from the time you're in the womb to the day you die, your whole sends electrical impulses. It takes one electrical misfire for you to drop dead, just like a brain aneurysm or something else. It yeah. can happen in a literal heartbeat. So now I'm 26 years old. I lost my spot on my SWAT team overnight. I don't know if I have a job. It's, I got labeled as damaged goods. It's like, hey, we can't have this cop out here with a defibrillator. Obviously, my command staff didn't know anything about cardiac arrest. They all thought I had a heart attack or something. <laughs> and I, I had to explain there's differences in all of this. And now that I have this device implanted in my chest and I'm on medication, I'm safer than any other cop out there. Mm. First responders are at a 70% higher risk of heart disease in the general population. And we are 25 times more likely to die from heart disease than a violent encounter with a suspect. You know, we got 20 year less life expectancy than the people we serve. So I, I, I now had to fight to keep my job. You know, I, I had to fight and go toe to toe with the governing board. We had to go to risk management. Thank God, Chief Mark Mann had my back. He would, he refused to let them cast me aside. And I brought in our state medical director and researchers and I fought to go back. And as far as I know, I'm one of the only cops, if not the only cop to return to full active duty with an implanted defibrillator in my chest and that came with a whole other magnitude i had to figure out hey does my radio interfere with this thing wow. what happens when i get tased yeah. what happens if this you know okay what happens when i go through medical detectors when i'm going and booking somebody in jail like i had to be the guinea pig and it's not a fun thing when you're the first one to do it you know you're calling you're calling taser and you're calling the the medical the manufacturer's device going hey what happens if i get tased and the only answer you get is we don't recommend it that's not an answer. I got to know what happens. Yeah. And after, you know, six months a year trying to figure this out, no one would give me an answer. So I called my SWAT medic and said, Hey, bring your monitor over. I'm taking a ride. Tased myself, you know, stood up and nothing happened. I went in that day to get checked. And the, the tech was like, you did what? He's like, you realize you could have set this back to factory settings. You could have turned on the dormant pacemaker function. You could have done this, this. I said, then why wouldn't you tell me that when I called you guys for the last year? Yeah. Why did I have to do something stupid in order to get an answer from you guys? Because they're all worried about liability and stuff. Right, but long story short, I got back to the field and I made a full recovery. I went back to full active duty and now I had to prove myself to my guys. Everyone looked at, Everyone's looking at me like this fragile China doll. And I'm like, look, I, there's nothing wrong with me. I can outrun. I can outbench. I can outfight each of you. Let's do this. And I had to, it took a good six months to a year before guys realized that I wasn't just going to clutch my chest and fall over. I'm like, you know, this could happen to anybody at any time. So I, that's when I realized how unprepared law enforcement really is. You know, we're on scene first before the fire department, 90% of the time, we're usually on scene in the first one to four minutes where we have the highest likelihood to save someone's life. So I'm sitting there going, why don't we have AEDs? Why does our training suck? Well, most of the time our training is you get a leftover class, like a PowerPoint, here's some clicker mannequins. You know, they watch a stupid video for civilians. Like, you call 911, you get an AED. And none of us take it seriously. And you take all 30 seconds on a mannequin and they go, hey, you're certified. None of us are focusing on 
good brain perfusion. We're not focusing in our depth. We're not focusing on our recoils and we're not doing it realistic to our conditions. We're not doing it with the meth addict in the corner watching us. We're not doing this when we're doing it one handed coordinating the fire department, when you got a guy with a warrant in the corner and there's drugs everywhere. It's, it's a very different atmosphere for cops. So we wanted to take that force on force training. We wanted to take the reality based training we do for active shooters and for hostage rescue scenarios that we do in the SWAT world. And we wanted to bring that to resuscitation. So we created this course and now we help implement entire systems of care. We created Griffith Blue Heart. We had to bring in experts because there was no playbook. Cops are kind of left in the middle. So we had to bring in all these experts to for policies, for dispatch protocols. We had to talk about reality-based training, medical direction, and kind of give a whole system of care. You can't just throw AEDs in the back of the cop car and hope the system works out. Like you have to have a plan in place and a whole system of care. So that's, I know I just threw a lot at you, but that's basically how I got into this and how I got kind of thrust into it, trying to earn my second chance of life. Absolutely. Well, first and foremost, uh, uh, that's an amazing story. Uh, I'm glad you, you made it through it. Uh, and, and just, just to fight for your life and then to, to get that back and then the fight to, to keep your job when you know that you're good and then to be brave enough to, uh, to actually take the ride yourself with the taser, just, just to get an answer. Or I dumb enough. <laughs> Whatever word you want to fill in the blank with. I mean, I, I when I took the ride the first time, it was mandatory with my former department. I said, if I don't have to do this ride, I'm not doing it again. If I don't have, to. I mean, just to the the clear the, the get away from the the curiosity of I need to know what happens. I have to know and to do it, and then not knowing what the outcome is going to be. The outcome was very favorable. I mean, that's amazing in itself. Uh, the fight for your job back. What kind of what kind of grit did that take to actually have to go forward with it because a lot of guys i know i won't say a lot of guys i know a lot of guys would after dealing with a traumatic experience like that would just hang it up and, and move on that was something that that was a mental health roller coaster man i'm not gonna lie it was not an easy thing to do like literally all i wanted to do was get into law enforcement once i got a taste of it once it started becoming an fto and started getting into dt and firearms instruction i loved it i wanted i i, I wanted to be a swat cop i just made my team i made my goal and now to be overnight be told that you know yeah. you can't be a cop anymore it was like most young guys don't have a plan B. They don't prepare for that. What happens if you get in that car accident? What happens if you're shot in the line of duty? What happens right. if you have a brain aneurysm? Guys don't prepare for what if I have to change careers tomorrow? And that there's so much depression and there's high suicide rates and there's all kinds of other things that come with it. And it hit me like a freight train, man. Like I was an emotional wreck. All I wanted to do was be a part of this brotherhood. I wanted to get back out on the streets. I wanted to serve. And there was nothing wrong with me. And now I'm being told you can't. And at first it was like, you know, it was devastating. Man. I, I, there was a lot of tears. There was a lot of praying. There was a lot of talking to people that I looked up to, but it turned to anger real quick. It turned to who the hell do you think you are? You can tell me what I can and can't do. I don't think so. I'm not taking no for an answer. And I had to go in there and say, say show me where it says I can't do this with this medical device. And I had to go in there with that, that anger and that grit and say, I'm not, I'm not backing down. I don't care what it takes. I'll tase myself. And it was, it was a, it was a fight, man, and putting that on my family, because at this point in time, after your cardiac arrest, you're at the highest risk of having another one in the first three to six months. We don't know if I'm going to drop dead again. My wife was afraid to leave me at home. She had my SWAT team leader coming over to babysit me when she was at work sometimes. Like, it's a scary encounter, man. I was on the floor dead. She had to watch her husband, her high school sweetheart, dead on the floor for 16 and a half minutes, not knowing if I was coming back. Where is that income going to go? Where? What about these medical bills? Like all the stuff that goes along with that she had she lived it this is her story it's not mine i was dead on the floor she did all the the, the heroism here so her recovering from that trauma during this was another aspect on top of that so yeah. i had to take care of her i had to take care of my mental health being i had to take care of my job how am i going to pay for my bills she's just started medical school how am i going to pay to support her through this and it, it was it was tough and i had to i had to go in and dig to a place and turn to people and once I got over that hurdle and returned to the field, it was still like, all right, well, you know what? Now that I'm back, now what? Like, mm -hmm. I can still do more. I need to earn my, I need to give God a reason to keep me around. I need to do something with this second chance. And that's where, that's where I started looking around, seeing the, the real need and how underutilized cops are for these life and death scenarios and how many hundreds of lives we can literally save per year. So that's when I started talking to my wife about, I need to do something with this. Mm -hmm. And I we and once I started getting involved and once I started making the differences and we started implementing these programs and getting those life saves, man, 
was that reaffirming, man. I can't tell you the emotional waves that come over me when we get calls from guys like, hey, I just got a save, or that AED you gave me, I just used it, and we just pulled the kid out of the pool. And when you get those phone calls and know that someone's life was saved and I was able to give pay it forward and for my second chance, man, it, <laughs> sorry, man, it gets me a little emotional, but it, it hits you, right? And it's a, yeah. it's it's earning each day. It became my mantra, earn each day. At the end of each day, I got to look at myself and say, hey, was I a good enough father? Was I a good enough husband? Did I make a difference? Did I help someone today? Or did I waste the chance I've been given? Because there's a thousand other Americans today that are going to die from cardiac arrest that aren't going to get this chance. So I, I can't ever take it for granted. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. It was such an eye-opening experience. A lot of things that we take for granted, uh, us in the law enforcement community and, and the public as well. You know, you, you're, you sit on the couch, you, you have a day off, and you just want to put your feet up and I'll take care of it tomorrow. And and you you see you 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 see a void, uh, and you're filling that void. You see a need, uh, and, and it gives you passion. And you can see your passion coming through. And filling that void, what what you know, Griffith Blue Heart, your 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 nonprofit. How do you fill that void with your nonprofit? What do, what kind of services do you provide? What kind of training do you provide? So first thing we got to look at is why we had to look at what what is the problem here? Why does the system fail? Why does why is there only a seven to nine percent survival rate around the country? Well, how is how is it the cardiac community has failed this badly? To not only be you say cardiac arrest. I mean, before you talked to me today, did you know it was an electrical issue? Or did you think I had a heart attack? Me personally, I would have said a heart attack. Most people do, and it's okay. The heart attacks are plumbing issues. Cardiac arrest is electrical. It's like a clogged pipe versus you plug it in the Christmas tree and it shorts out, right? Most oh. people don't know about that. They don't know that we lose 30,000 kids under the age of 18 to electrical malfunctions. All those stories you see where kids playing basketball, hockey, swimming, they just drop dead, just like we just saw on Monday Night Football this yeah, week. Yeah, yeah. All perfect. those stories are cardiac arrest, and no one can fathom that a perfectly healthy 17-year-old kid can just drop dead. So it's, we had to look at the issue. What, what is the problem? Why, how do we actually save lives? And it's rapid defibrillation. CPR, it's not like you see in TV, you don't press in someone's chest for a couple seconds and they go, I'm alive, or they flatline. You're not restarting a dead car battery, right? The heart's in that arrhythmia and you shock them to restore it back to a normal rhythm. Mm -hmm. So we had to sit there and go, well, why is defibrillation an issue? Well, four out of five cases happen in the home. I mean, there's a ton of great programs out there that are about, hey, get AEDs at sports arenas and airports and supermarkets. Hell yes, I'm all about that. But it's only 13% of cases. 77% happen inside the home. In your house right now, do you have an AED? I do not. Most people don't. Are you prepared? Is your spouse, is your kids prepared if you go down? They know you because most cops, most firefighters, we're at the highest risk. We're going to go down. We have these overactive endocrine systems. We're sleep deprived. We're caffeine addicted. We don't get to work out the way we're supposed to. We have all these different things that compound against us that contribute to a 70% higher rate of heart disease in our community. Most guys, our, our spouses get too complacent. If anything ever happens, you know, please a cop. He'll take care of it. Or my husband's, a, you know, my wife's a firefighter. She'll save the life. They don't think about what happens when they're the ones that go down. So we had to look at this problem and say, why is it that defibrillation is an issue? We have fire and EMS services. What's mm -hmm. going on? Well, fire and EMS services, the way they're dispatched is stacked against us, right? They have a goal of getting to your house within six and a half minutes if something happens. No department's at that. Almost every single agency in the country has an average response time between six and a half to, you know, 13, 14 minutes. Mm -hmm. And you start looking at it and it's like, all right, so for every minute you wait to initiate CPR, the chance of survival drops 10%. So if you're waiting seven, eight minutes for the fire department to get on scene, by the time they get on scene, put on their PPE, prime the heart, talk to the medical director, do everything all their protocols are supposed to do, the time to first shot could be anywhere from three to 11 minutes. Wow. So if you're waiting seven minutes and three to four minutes after that to get shocked, what are your chances of survival? Almost nothing. So unless they're on scene first, they're not getting it. Most people don't have AEDs in the home. So we said, well, how, how can we fix this problem? Because... I was a half a mile from the fire department the day I died. I figured everything happened, I'd be good. But they were on another call and they have advocate response. Of that course. diabetic patient they were with, they can't toss them, you know, a Snickers yeah. bar or M&Ms and say, good luck, someone's worse than you down the road. Right. The next closest unit gets dispatched. They're on a car accident. So the next, it took them nine and a half minutes to me because the third unit that was dispatched had to respond. Mm -hmm. All right. So how do we solve this problem, right? The police departments. We have full squads of guys, three, four, ten, or however big your department is. You got full squads of guys that are deployed all throughout the community. 
if we're on a, you know, a barking dog call or a civil complaint and someone's dying a block away, we have to break. Right. Yep. So it's a force multiplier because we're already spread out throughout a community. And most mm-hmm. of the time we can get on scene in the first one to four minutes when we have the highest chance of saving someone's life. So the first program we had to associate was getting life-saving devices in cops' hands. We had to figure out how to get AEDs, whether that's through grants, city funds, corporate sponsors, hospital donations, whether that's through fundraisers, whatever we had to do, we had to figure out how to get these life-saving devices in the hands of our fastest first responders. But then it's like, you can't just toss them in the back. You have to, how is it going to be funded? How is it going to be supported? Who's going to report this to their medical director? Who's going to, how is the system of care going to go roll out? So we had to go, okay, what policies do we put in place? What chain of command do we have to put in place? How, How do we make this successful? Dispatch protocol. Some agencies, as soon as you call, hey, 911, what's your emergency? My husband's not breathing. Fire department goes directly to them. And there could be a cop across the street on a traffic stop that could have saved someone's life that has no idea that's going on. Uh-huh. So we have to fix dispatch protocol. There's so many different variables that the cardiac community doesn't understand how law enforcement works. Right. Citizens, we look at, we're not protected by the Good Samaritan laws. We're also not, we don't have the same protocols as fire and EMS, right? We're smack dab in the middle and no one knows what to do with us. So we kind of get the leftovers on both sides of it and have to figure it out. So that's the need I saw was how do we optimize this program? How do we implement systems of care to help cops do what they have to do? We're already on scene doing CPR. We're already compressing away going, when is fire going to get here? Get them the high quality training we need and get them the life-saving devices and medical applications. That way they can do what we do best. Man, absolutely. And I know uh, in this area, we see we uh, our dispatch, they let us know if fire EMS is going to a certain call, what that call is. Uh, we get, also get dispatch with them for um, any kind of cardiac arrest or anything that requires an AED response. And I mean, though, many times we get, like you said, where we uh, we're in our zones or beats or whatever each department calls them. You're couple minutes away so you we're normally first on the scene first on the scene you're giving out directions first on the scene you find out where that person is and you're administering care and then nine times out nine times out of ten it's in a location uh where you do have to have where you're, the training does come into effect because you're looking around. You've got this person over here. You got this person down here that you're giving care to. You're guiding in uh, a newer uh, FTO where that that person may not know that the back of the hotel. You have to go around a certain building to get to the back of the hotel. The only seasoned officers know certain things like that come into play. Is that what yeah. your your situation and trainings? They they also. Um, show and dictate and help teach all that as well we do we we do a walk crawl run we go through that we do a didactic classroom phase we do skills building phase to really do high performance with high-tech feedback mannequins and we do bleeding simulators for hemorrhage control and overdoses and all kinds of stuff and then we do all reality-based training where we incorporate dispatch we incorporate officer safety we incorporate evidence preservation we incorporate the stuff that cops have to worry about because there's also a self-preservation aspect of it right how many times are we going to be on scene on a scene where it's not safe for fire and EMS to be in mm-hmm. constantly? What happens when your officer, yeah, your officer was shot, but that tourniquet, you put the tourniquet on, but they lost so much blood it induced a cardiac arrest. I can compress on my buddy's chest all day and it's not going to do anything without that defibrillator, but they're refusing to come in because the suspect's pinned down somewhere. Yeah. What do you do? How do you save your own buddy's life? if You don't have the tools to do it. How do you save your own life? And that's some of the things we had to address is this is this is an issue for us. So when departments start realizing that instead of paying out benefits to widows, instead of having officers out on long term care who suffer heart attacks or heart failure or strokes or aneurysms or anything on duty, they can start being preventative and proactive in these cases, getting heart screenings, getting sleep policies in there, uh, helping get the life saving equipment their guys needs, because we have to save ourselves first if we're going to serve the community. Right. So we, we have to incorporate all these aspects from health and wellness to the service in the community, to reality based training, to a system of care. And it's complex and it's a lot of times, I mean, it, it takes a year, year and a half to implement a lot of these programs with agencies because we're starting from, because what works for a small municipal agency is not going to work for a large one. What works for county isn't going to work for a state agency. Right. So it very much has to be custom tailored and everybody wants the quick fix. Everybody wants to just, hey, copy paste. How do I opt to, how do I expand this across multiple avenues? And they want to make a quick buck and sell it, move on to the next one. No, yeah. if you want to make, true lasting change you need to take the time to do it right and implement it and let it grow cops 10 years ago i mean 10 years ago were you carrying tourniquets did you have narcan no neither no 
no, no cop wanted to carry it. It was like, man, we started carrying hemorrhage control stuff out of self-preservation. If I get shot or if I go to an active shooter scene, I need to have this in case I'm hit, right? But all of a sudden, we're responding to suicide attempts, gunshot victims, car accidents. We're gonna, what are we gonna do? Stand there and let them bleed to death while I have this on my on my chest rig? No, we started using our devices to save lives, and it was like, hey, all of a sudden, cops got more saves than fire and EMS from bleeding control. Narcan, there was a huge pushback. Cops were like, we're not carrying pharmaceuticals. We're not EMTs. No one wanted to carry it. Until yeah. they're like, hey, what happens when you walk into that den and someone blows fentanyl on your face? What are you going to do? Oh, wait, wait a second. So, and then all of a sudden, we're going to these overdoses of people that are going in and, hey, put this in their nostril, make a little squirt, and we got more saves from overdoses than fire and EMS. This is just the next stage in the evolution getting them the AEDs for our most prolific killer, which is heart disease, because this is what we're going to do. For comparison, we had 1,100 fatal police shootings last year, right? Mm -hmm. 697,000 Americans died from heart disease. What are we more likely to run across? You, you just named it. Absolutely. The numbers won't lie. And that's what that's what we're trying to fix. That's that's what we're trying to get at is how do we optimize this program? Who's the fastest first responders? Who thrives under stress? Who's able to perform like this? And it, it always comes down to cops. We're on scene. We're force multipliers. This is the answer. But especially in the last tumultuous years with the defund the police, with the bad mm -hmm. image law enforcement's got, mm -hmm. all these funds got repurposed for COVID. You know, there was limited grants available. It, it was a struggle just to keep our nonprofit alive and let mm -hmm. alone donate and help agencies. So now it's, I think the pendulum's starting to swing in the right direction that people were very getting back to being pro law enforcement and seeing the value of what we do in the community. What better way than saving lives? What better way than empowering our guys to go out and do what we're already doing in a more mm -hmm. efficient manner? Absolutely. And I think you, what you touched on was you, you touched on a lot of things and it's very educating. I know a lot of the myths that go along and, and I probably had the stigma as well, where uh, if you had heart attacks, it was from working shift work from uh, 12 hour days uh, over day over, during the day, 12 hours overnight. You got court, then you're drinking, like you said, caffeine pills. You're not eating. You're going to the local fast food shop because it's very convenient because you have to you're between calls and you got to type something up. And you just want to get something in your system. It's so much. And it's not even intentional you're working so much you don't like you said you don't get to work out as much as you will want to it's just circumstantial because of your schedule and then all of a sudden after your 15 20 years in the game you know you, you drop over and have a quote-unquote heart attack from all the years of stress and what you're saying is is it definitely not it doesn't always have to be that case it can be so many different uh, issues or aspects at case uh case in point just like the football game that was aired a few days ago and one of the biggest complications, though, is that our endocrine systems are in overdrive, right? The average citizen sees, what, three to eight critical stress incidents in their entire life. Right. That's what, you know, a week for us, a shift. <laughs> we see stuff that you're not supposed to see on a constant basis. So every single time you do a traffic stop, every time you do an FI or make a contact with a subject, your body is dumping cortisol. It's dumping dopamine. It's dumping neuroepinephrine. You're getting all these chemical dumps. So our glands, our endocrine systems are fatigued. And the way you normally work that off after traumatic incidents is proper workouts, nutrition, and rest. Nah, we're going right back 10-8. We're going to the next one, right? And when we get home, guys want to say, oh, I kick back and relax. No, cracking open a cold beer in front of the TV is not relaxing. Opening up an energy drink to stay awake during shift is about the worst thing you can do for it. Now, caffeine and coffee in small doses, you know, a couple cups per day has been shown to be very beneficial for your health. But energy drinks are about the worst thing you can put in your body. We all know those guys that come into briefing and crack one open after the next throughout their entire shift. Religious sleep because all day all shift we're getting epinephrine we're getting these big drums so we feel exhausted but we're not getting good REM sleep we're not getting good deep we have to wake up and go to court we got to get our kids to school we got to go you know to this function to that function we have responsibilities as leaders in our community we have to take care of mm -hmm. so we constantly put our health and well-being on the back burner so to compensate for that we go to caffeine to compensate for that yeah we go to the gas station or hit the drive-through because i was too exhausted to make food make a healthy meal yeah. for this and our departments aren't helping it. We're also not, we, most of the time, our insurance covers a good heart screening. How many cops do you know actually get their hearts checked? They may do a physical, but how many are getting cardiac workups, getting their calcium checks, doing a cardiac MRI and EKG? It's covered by your damn insurance and you know you're at a higher risk. Stop putting it off. Get yourself checked because most of the time, you know, every time I do one of these podcasts, I'm so blessed that I get these phone calls from guys who are saying, hey, 
I listened, I went out, I got my heart checked, I got my kid's heart checked, and guess what? My son has cardiomyopathy, or I found out I have a blockage. I found out this, and that makes my day when we get to save and save people before it happens. And it's something right. that all, all these things compound against us. I mean, the environments we work in, we're not most supposed to be sitting in a car bored out of our mind for three hours and then going into all-out sprint and fight for your life. Going from, you know, extreme cold to a heated car, or, you know, here in Arizona, you're going from air conditioning or the gas station freezer to 120 degrees. So, I mean, the body's not meant to take what we do on a daily basis. So it, we need to start making better programs to take care of ourselves. So not only that we can live longer, but we can pass on our knowledge to the next generation. Mm, absolutely. Absolutely. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, I hope you guys are taking notes. Hope you guys are writing this down and definitely make sure you guys uh, schedule that appointment to get checked. The insurance does cover it. Uh, stay tuned. Uh, Sergeant B Safe is gonna ha- has a uh, commercial interlude. Stand by. I can't wait until my new children's book is finally published. Just riding along in my car, listening to music. Yeah, of course you are. And you're not looking in your rear view mirror either. OMG, is that Sergeant B safe behind me? Guess I should get out of the way. Oh my goodness. Pull over to the right and get out of the way. There's an emergency up ahead and I need to get there. Drivers, you should be operating your vehicle with your radio at a reasonable level. You should also be aware of your surroundings, including what's behind you. So when I come through with my flashing lights and siren, you can immediately get out the way and I can go help whoever's in danger or whatever emergency is happening. Those seconds that it takes for you to pull over are very valuable. Me and my friends need every second imaginable so we can properly serve you. So pull over to the right immediately when you see our lights and sirens so we can go save a life. Ah, my packages have finally arrived. About time. I'm sure glad I live in an area where nothing happens. Only action around here are deer chomping on people's flowers. I'll take him in after I get done cutting this head grass. This is my favorite pastime. Aha! I see a package left unattended. (sighs) Another crime of opportunity. Easy pickings for a guy like me. Oh no! There's B-Safe again. Sergeant B-Safe, is that you? It's good to see you. Looks like I'm right on time again. Rob, you blind. Get out of there. People make it so easy for me to get caught. Hold on now. He really wanted to steal my packages? Yes, he did. Sergeant B-Safe, you're the best. The coolest cat in the land. You saved the day again. We need more like you, brother. We need more like you. Trust me, I truly appreciate the glory and accolades. But you can really thank me by being vigilant over your property and making my job easy. Well, back to jail you go. Package thieves are the worst. Even if you can't get home in time, invest in the security camera so you can catch these thieves. And their next view will look like this. Trust me, this isn't a good view. These seats aren't made for comfort. They're made to transport. Kids, this is one seat you don't want to sit in. Just imagine what your parents would think. Ooh, and this is Sergeant B Safe giving you another tip of the day to get you on your way. Subscribe now.
All right, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome back. Thank you guys for tuning in. We are still here with Brandon Griffith with uh, Griffith, Griffith Blue Heart, his nonprofit. Uh, we've been talking about cardiac arrests and, and defibrillators and his personal story and situations and personal things that we've all gone through with those of us in the law enforcement community. Brandon, I want to ask you what, what I hate to ask this question this way. I always hate it, but it, it kind of gives you an in-game goal in mind. If what's your your in-game goal for your company, your, your nonprofit itself? Really, realistically, a three to five year. But it, what would you? Where do you visualize your your nonprofit in the next three to five years? I'll put it that way. Man, I'm not. I'm a street cop, right? I, I'm a knuckle dragger, and I had to learn. I had to learn the business side of things like so many guys that leave the field. So I'll tell you that I want to learn more about the business applications, the fundraising side of it, the stuff I'm not good at. Me and my guys are phenomenal at program implementation, at instruction and training. So being able to grow and scale this and start doing train the trainer programs and implement this with agencies across the country, because that's how we make the force multiplier. That's mm -hmm. how we really save lives. I mean, I'm not exaggerating when I say it keeps me up at night that we could save hundreds of thousands of lives each year if more agencies adopted these programs. I mean, we have literally quadruple survival with the agencies we've implemented the stuff with. We are getting dozens of saves at a time and it's something that I am incredibly proud of. I I want this to grow like everything else. Like, like it's common nature now for cops to have tourniquets. It's common for everyone to have Narcan. It's expected. I want this level of training and I want reality-based training for resuscitation to become the norm for law enforcement. Like we go out and do force on force training. We do simulations. I want that to be the regular for resuscitation because that's what we're more likely to run across. I want this to spread like wildfire. And that's where we're trying to get to the point where we can do a train the trainer, come to an agency, train your guys how to run this, accredit you and help you give you templates, give you recommended gear lists, show you guys how to do this yourself because we don't want to be the only ones doing it. So many times, especially in these in the cardiac and business communities, everyone wants to be the only one doing what they're doing. You know, you're either with this manufacturer, you do this CPR program or this CPR program, or you do this. I'm tired of that. We're public servants first. Cops and firefighters don't think that way. We, we need to solve this problem. We're problem solvers. That's what I want this to get to the point where this is out of the hands of corporations. This is out of the hands of that. This is public servants problem solving and doing what we best and adopting these programs to serve our community because preservation of life is our highest priority. Absolutely. Couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> yes. So throughout that, throughout that system itself, um, we talked about <clears throat> five-year goals. Uh, and, and wanting to implement that with departments. Uh, you answered one of the questions I was going to ask. Uh, do, do you actually go out to individual departments or do you have a, a location where people, where uh, departments or trainings come to you? Um, and with that, once the training is administered, um, do you, I, I saw on the website, you offer follow-ups or you offer trainings for grants or you offer trainings for to keep the funding going or to keep the projects going. Can you, can you touch a little bit on that? Yeah, we do it all. When Once we partner with an agency, we work with them and we work with their command staff. I mean, a lot of times you get passed off to like, you know, a training sergeant or somebody else that's already overworked and has too much on their plate. So you have to go from the top down. You have to get buy-in from the command staff and then implement it from the top down. So once we work with command staff members, we implement an entire system of care. And like if I... If I work my butt off and I write all these grants, I mean, I get you a $100,000 grant and I give you this program, you need to have a plan in place. We're going to sustain that. I'm not going to give you $100,000 worth of free stuff if you're not going to make this program a success. Right. So we need to have checks and balances in place. So we need to make sure, okay, how are you going to sustain this program? As a private EMS group, can I help you with pads and batteries? Are you going to put this in your patrol budget? Are you going to factor in the cost of this? Are you getting mm -hmm. grants? What is your game plan? Because unless you have a plan to sustain this, if you have policies in place, if you have a chain of command, you can't assign this to, you know, Officer Klee. You need to assign it to a position in the department because when Officer Klee retires or goes to do something else, the program crumbles because he held all the knowledge. You need to have right. it in writing first. You need to have that. You need to have that chain of command. You're working with medical directors, making sure you're in compliance with state legislation. All of that has to be there. We are very fortunate to do consulting and work all over the country. We get calls from agencies that say, like, hey, we just bought AADs. We want to do a policy. We want to figure out how to sustain this. Or, hey, we need to figure out this. Can we get a recommended gear list? Or can you come out and do training for us? You know, we have agencies, you know, from Hawaii to California to Pennsylvania to all over wanting to work with us right now. And we're lining up trainings for the 2023 year. 
we're trying to get to the point where we're doing the train the trainer and yes we will come to you we will travel we will get out there we will put on high performance resuscitation training it's an eye opener and mm-hmm. we are actually proving that cops are better at resuscitation than most er nurses and doctors we are very competitive we want to beat each other we're very good at doing um muscle memory and fine motor skill development everything we do on the firearms range translates into resuscitation your depth your recoil mm-hmm. getting getting that perfect rhythm so cops we're we're doing this program with them and we have increased res- overall resuscitation scores to 98 percent. it's the lowest score we've ever had at the end of our courses we go back six months to a year later and cops are still in the high 80s low 90s wow. most of the time er docs and physicians they have to train quarterly because after about 60 days their scores plummet well, look at their training they walk in there's a big gurney with a big mannequin on it there's no stress they go out there they do they sing staying alive while they're doing their compressions and that's hey they're good to go there's no stress they're not triggering the parasympathetic nervous system there's no rea- there's no realism to it there's nothing on the line once right. you start getting those adrenaline rushes in training and it make you critically think under stress guys remember that they go man that was that was good training we need to be doing this more often and that's when that's what we're trying to get to with the levels of it, to be able to expand that and show other cops how to do this so we don't have to physically be the ones doing it all the time, but still advise them. Gotcha. So if there's a department that's watching right now or they're going to watch the replay, and the, the website, your website's scrolling below, and it's also in the comment section, and they wanted to reach out to you. Other than the website, how would they get in contact with you? Matt Griffith, blueheart.com. We've got the website. We've got, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm Brandon Griffith. We're going to start going on other more. I'm, I'm not a big social media guy. I, I got to get on that though. Cause that's yeah, just the world we're living in. So we are going to start getting Instagram and Facebooks and all that stuff, but they can contact us direct. We've got our emails listed out there. The, uh, my phone number is easy to get a hold of. If they want to get a, if they want to get a hold of Griffith Blue Heart and start working on these programs, we're more than happy to work with them. Absolutely. Hey, Brandon, you gave a great live. I appreciate everything you've done. We, uh, um, you, you donated a wonderful time. Your story is incredible. Um, before we go, I, through the course of conversation, there may be a question I forgot or there may be something triggered that you may have remembered. Is there anything that you would like to uh, share with us right now? As of right now, the floor is yours. Again, I, I just really want to strive the fact that, you know, prepare your loved ones. Don't let your loved ones become another statistic. You know, I don't want you to be in that situation when your, your spouse, your parent, and your kid drop in front of you and you questioning your ability. I don't want you to have that. I want you to play those what ifs that we do on the streets. You know, what happens right now if at dinner, my wife collapses into her dinner plate? What do I do when my kid drops? Is my, my kid's school prepared? Start being a champion for change because that's what we are. We make the differences. Every time we put on that uniform, we sign a blank check up until including our own life. We can be the change we want to see. We can start implementing it. Be those champions and start going out there. Make sure your schools are prepared. Make sure that your homes are prepared. Take care of yourself. Don't wait for your department to sponsor or to buy it. Take your own initiatives. Get your hearts checked. Take care of those around you. That's what you do as a leader. You take care of those around you and make sure that you are earning each day you're given because it can literally end in a heartbeat. Don't let this job become too entwined with your identity. Too often, guys, I, I, I am a cop. That's who I am. No, that's what you do. And literally in a heartbeat, your entire career path could change. You know, a car accident, anything else. Have backup plans. Don't be one of those guys that go down that mental health rabbit hole or start going towards suicide because you didn't start thinking of what happens out this. Don't become that role. You you are still a you know, husband or a father or a wife or a family member or an advocate or a gymnast or what, whatever it is that you're into, but start adopting things outside of this role and have backup plans because we need people like you, people that are willing to raise their hands and go out there and serve the communities and make those differences. So earn each day you're given. Love it. I love it. Brandon, thank you for coming on. I appreciate everything. Uh, I appreciate look, watching you move forward, watching you flourish. I hope the, the goals that, that you spoke of do get accomplished. Uh, I'm looking forward to uh, watching departments grow. And you're saying cops are out here outperforming uh, ER doctors and nurses. I like that. I like that. Yes, like, absolutely. We are very competitive. Um, we're a competitive in-house. We're competitive each department were competitive nationally. So to actually hear that, that so much, we get so much grief in the world. So to actually hear some positives is a wonderful thing. Absolutely, man. Thank you so much for having me on and listening to me up today. I really appreciate it.
Yeah, absolutely. You gave a good gave a good story, gave a good testimonial. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, thank you guys for tuning in. We go live weekly. We got a special lineup for 2023. I'm excited about this entire year. We got so many good people, go so many good stories, so many good situations coming down the pipeline. Tune in weekly. We go live weekly at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Make sure you guys tag, like, and share, and stay tuned. We got Sergeant B. Safe that's going to take us out, and we will see you guys again. 10-4, over and out. Insanity. Doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. Sergeant B. Safe here, and I'm stuck in the office. I'm stuck. You want to know why? I'll be completing reports for stolen vehicles. Yeah, that's right. Stolen vehicles. I tell people all the time to lock their doors and put away their valuables. However, this continues to happen. Do you know that about approximately 95% of all auto thefts can be prevented? Here, let's go for a walk and I'll show you a few examples. Example number one, you go to the store and you leave your car running. Little do you know that Chance Wilder's on the prowl. Uh, he sees your car running with the door unlocked, gets in it, and they're off! Start. Oh no! Frustrating. Let's move on to example number two. Ooh. You're at home and the car's parked for the day. But you feel safe and secure and believe this can never happen to me. And there's Rob you blind going from car to car. Uh, just got Party caught though. Poopa, be safe. Hands up. You're coming with me. Ooh. People leave their car doors unlocked and believe it or not, their keys in them. Here's video footage of someone going onto someone's driveway and entering their car. And guess what? Stealing that too. Even if you don't keep your car key, don't keep your spouse's key in the vehicle either. Believe it or not, they park right beside you. So therefore, take the extra step, lock your vehicle, and take your keys inside. So here's a little bit of information for you. If your car is ever stolen, and then I find it and recover it, it's usually not in the same condition that it once was. It could have been involved in a motor vehicle accident because of joyriding, or just have more dent scratches and damage on it. You'll get an incident report and a tow bill. Your insurance company may cover the towing and recovering fee, but you could also have to come out of pocket with some extra expenses. So now let's move on to example number three. Parking lots at major businesses are prime target. Lock your doors, put valuables away, park in well-lit areas, and definitely do not, I cannot stress it any harder, leave your vehicle running in the parking lot because no matter how many times Rob you blind and Wild Chance go to jail, they will always take advantage of a prime opportunity to take your valuables or steal your vehicle. Don't be an easy target. Hands up, you both are coming with me. Ooh. These are just a few examples of how you can protect yourself and be vigilant with your property. Uh. And that's your tip of the day to get you on your way.